beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK 90.7 FM for all of Southern California, streaming at kpfk.org for the world. My guest today is joining us from Colorado, though she's been on the road. She travels all over the United States, and I got a feeling around the world as well. She has a fascinating background, and it's a pleasure to introduce and welcome to the Mystery School on KPFK, Suzanne Giesman. Suzanne, good afternoon, and thanks for joining us on KPFK. Good afternoon, Michael, and everybody listening. Always a joy to talk about my favorite subjects. And if you're going to hang your coat on that hook, what would you call it? What is your favorite subject? <laughs> <laughs> that we are not these these stumbling humans stuck in these bodies that break down. We are so much more than that. And the bottom line is it's all about love. It is. And that's fun and liberating. You know, I more I live, the longer I live, let me say it that way, the more I love people. Sometimes it saddens me to see people who have no idea who they are, how wonderful and magnificent they are, how much they have to offer to others. And it can be a terrifying world. It can be very frightening, of course. We've come out of COVID. We're in an era of great political polarization. And yet, I remember asking Timothy Leary once, quite a few years ago, whether he was an optimist And he looked at me like I was from Mars, and he said, well, of course, what choice do I have? Hmm. And I've always thought of that. Yeah, why not be optimistic? Well, we do have a choice. We do have a choice. And a lot of people don't realize that. And it's programs like yours that help people know that they, they can choose something better. How would you frame that choice? Understanding that we are more than just our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations. We are actually consciousness and expression, which doesn't make sense to people when they just hear it. So one of my goals is to help people find a way to actually experience an aspect of them that is not suffering, that is not stuck, that does have that choice. Yeah, and that certainly is available. There's no question about it. I feel that personally, I've had the good fortune to live a life as a radio guy and personal development trainer, where My vocation and my avocation have been the same thing, doing what you love to do. That frees me to immerse myself in this material. And the more I learn about human potential and what we're really capable of, the more joyous, the more joy and happiness and freedom I feel. That's it. And it's funny you use that word because I've stopped using the word consciousness or God or source, and I call it this, this awareness that enlivens us I call it joy. And that doesn't mean that my life or anybody else's life is one moment of joy after another, but knowing that it's always there, it's the underlying essence that makes all the difference in the world. Suzanne, you have a fascinating backstory. Um, you come 
to all of this through the military. And I'm just wondering if you can give us a thumbnail sketch of how that all came to be. How did you come to join the Navy and then rise so quickly through the ranks to commander and working with the Joint Chiefs? And you were a trainer for many years, I understand, as well in the military. Tell us about that. Well, I have a brother who's quite a bit older than I am, and he was in the Air Force for most of my life growing up, and I thought that was just a great lifestyle, and of course I saw it as a way to serve my country and to see the world and to use foreign languages, which was my major in college. And I did all three of those things, and you say rose through the ranks quickly. Really, Michael, I just followed the normal progression of any military officer, and I did my job well, and so I did go right through the ranks and had a series of fascinating assignments around the world. And I loved almost every minute of it. Not every job is perfect, but did get to serve as a commanding officer and then as aide to the senior most officer in the entire United States military, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. But I had no idea I would one day be doing the work I'm doing today. That's the unusual part of my story. So how do you go from the Navy to traveling mystic? I was in the last aircraft in U.S. airspace on 9-11, and that's what convinced me life is too short not to live your dreams while you can. So I retired with 20 years to the date. The date I was retirement eligible, I left the Navy and literally sailed off into the sunset with my husband. There was too much devastation, a tragedy of 9-11 for me to just hang around. I said, that's it. We're going to go live our dreams. And we sailed away and sailed for several years, and then life caught up with me. It's as if... As if the universe said, wait a minute, you were supposed to pay attention on 9-11 and figure out what this is really all about. And so a few years after we started sailing, my stepdaughter, a sergeant in the Marine Corps, was struck and killed by lightning on duty. And suddenly I couldn't ignore things anymore. I couldn't run away. And that's when I started asking the questions. Why do some people die young? Is there really a spirit that inhabits the body? If so, I am going to connect with Susan. And that was my new mission. And I just jumped in. Feet first, head first, whatever you want to say, I was all in. So where did you jump in? What was your entry point? First thing, because we were overseas, we had sailed across the Atlantic Ocean in our boat. Uh, We came home for the funeral, and I just stopped on the way to the airport at a bookstore and bought several metaphysical books on the afterlife to see if this is real. Backtracking to the funeral looking at Susan's body in the coffin, I just suddenly knew there is something that gives life to the body. So if that is this spirit that I've heard people talking about it, that I've heard people talking about, then I'm going to find it. So I've picked up three books that just seem to call to me. Now I know I was meant to read them. And they pointed to this greater reality that I hoped was real, but somebody better prove it to me with my left brain military background. So the next step was not until about a year after she passed, I finally found someone who claimed they could speak to those in the spirit world. She wasn't really a practicing medium, but that's what a medium does. And I took my husband to see her. She fit the bill because she didn't know my last name. She couldn't look me up online. I was very skeptical. And One session with her changed my entire world and the trajectory of my life because there was no doubt in my mind or my husband's mind that our daughter Susan was right there with us, still very much existing in awareness as a sentient, clever, creative being. 
Anyone who's ever been with a person who died or in the presence of a body after the individual has passed, I think is struck by, how can I say this, just how dead they appear. Oh, it's massively different. It's just remarkable. I remember visiting my mother 30 minutes. I arrived at the airport just minutes after she passed. And so by the time I got there, I was struck by just how not there she was. Here's this body that certainly looked like my mother, but my mother was nowhere to be found. (laughs) Yes, she was. She was probably standing there right beside you (laughs) in spirit. I know that now. But you also know what I mean in terms of this corporeal being. And the phrase that came to my mind at the time My mother lived a good long life. She was 93 years old and very uh, alert and viable right to the end. But the phrase that came to my mind was a phrase I had read years earlier about the spirit that illumines and animates. And I thought that's what's missing. That's exactly what the light of consciousness does. This breath, yes, this consciousness, but this breath, this viability, this spirit that illumines and animates. And that was gone. There was no animation, of course, and no illumination. And yet I also know from my background that, I mean, even just as a physicist, energy cannot be destroyed. Merely transformed. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so... uh I don't want to make this program about me, but I did have dreams about her. She came to me in dreams afterwards, and I think many people probably have that experience. But a dream is an altered state. Meditation is an altered state. When you began to explore this idea of communicating with people on the other side of the veil, I presume you were doing that in some sort of altered state. So how did you learn meditation or a trance-like state or... I just uh, jumped right in and thought maybe I just need to quiet my mind. And so for the first three weeks of daily attempts to connect with Susan, I fell asleep. It's like the body says, whoa, the commander's finally going to take a nap, (laughs) something I never did. And then, then I was able to stay awake, but started to know things about other people as my intuition came back online. I was not yet aware of any presence of anybody in the so-called spirit world. I couldn't feel Susan, but I just kept at it and at it and just opened myself to information, insights, and soon poetry that started flowing in full stanzas with full rhyme with no pause that was clearly not coming from my consciousness. That was the first big change. We could go on and on with the many adventures and consciousness I had, but ultimately I did very clearly connect with Susan in her own voice. And what I did, Michael, was I put her to the test. I said, all right, if this is you, I need some evidence. Tell me something I don't know. Tell me something going on in your biological mother's life that I can validate because your dad, I'll go out to him and I'll say, Ty, Susan visited me and he'll just pat me on the back and say, that's nice, honey. And I didn't want that. I had learned enough from reading about mediumship that I know that you can get evidence from those across the veil. 
And wow, she did it. She did it big time. She told me her mom's cat was sick, that her mother had decorative lights up inside her house. Right now, year-round, not just Christmas. And we called her mom and validated those two things. She came back later and validated more things. And so anytime I connect with somebody across the veil, I ask for evidence. And they give it to me so much so that I can guarantee anyone there is an afterlife the soul survives death i have no doubt whatsoever the preponderance of the evidence is overwhelming as i mentioned to you before we started the interview today we interviewed recently dr eben alexander about his amazing experience and boy he's very persuasive if somebody needs convincing and uh, i suppose anybody can dig in their heels and deny the possibility that this universe is so much more magnificent and miraculous than we even imagine. Well, I don't, I don't try to convince skeptics, Michael, because ultimately we will all experience that, whether in this body or afterwards, and all they're doing is just delaying the ultimate joy. Yeah, you know? indeed. Yeah. There's a point where you have to learn to trust this information. Intuition is very different from logic. And most of us trained in school to be very logical. It's a very linear, if this is true, then that's true, and that leads to B and C and D. Intuition arrives full-blown. It's like this whole, aha, the, the curtain parts and the whole thing is revealed to you all at once. How did you develop your trust of your intuition and the information that was coming to you in these altered states? I would say that was a multifaceted path. The first was so much evidence. And when I would sit with people and connect with their loved ones and I didn't deliver something I sensed because I didn't trust, they would tell me something later that would validate what I didn't tell them. And it's one of those, darn it, that would have been a beautiful moment and I missed it. When you have enough of those moments, you just learn to say everything, no matter if you feel you're going to look foolish. So you have to get over yourself to trust. And then the other thing is just the personal experience in meditation when connecting with those non-physical helpers who I've learned to trust beyond any doubt, that to just listen to their advice, act on it, and the more I do so, the more beautiful and miraculous life flows. So I would be foolish not to trust. Sometimes uh, it seems to me that I'm foolish to rely on my brain and my mind when I have this guidance above me. And I always attribute that to my own oversoul in the sense of... Uh, Emerson, for example, having written about Oversoul. And, of course, the idea of an Oversoul is a little challenging in the West because we're taught that the soul indwells, but that it does not overshadow. And, of course, if our soul is already in heaven and we're an extension or an emanation of the soul, then the whole idea of having to behave in order to get to heaven. You know, I was raised Catholic, and uh, I found a lot of my Catholicism to be abusive. I, I was told that I was the fault. I was the reason Christ died and continued to suffer. He was still on the crucifix in my church. And it was all, I was bad, I was wrong. I, 
is all I'm I'm bad and wrong, and then I'd go home and be told again, "You're a bad little boy," you know, "You're a rotten kid," and so I I bought into that for so many years. There's a lot people have to get over. But if our soul's in heaven, we don't have to earn passage, do we? Well, I actually don't. I don't ascribe to our soul is in heaven. The soul and heaven are metaphors that we use to explain how we interact with higher consciousness. I absolutely know there are alternate realities. Heaven is a state of consciousness. We can access that blissful state and touch it now. If the soul is a metaphor, then for me it would be a metaphor for that non-physical aspect of us that never dies. It is here, and it is always in a state that accesses all consciousness, all that is, that which some people call heaven. So really what we do is we use stories and metaphors to explain who we are, and many of them are truthful, but many of them hold us back from our magnificence, as you so aptly put it. Yeah, well, even language is a metaphor. Every word we use is symbolic in some way. That's right, and really holds us back. But between our ultimate source, between the Godhead, the source, and this physical instrument walking around on Earth, it would appear to me, it seems to me, that there must be many, many planes or spheres of existence. Right. Yes, but we're, we are extensions of that one field from which all those dimensions arise, in my understanding. We're not separate from them. We are interdependent beings, not independent beings. It's all one spectrum of awareness arising in different forms, like a big sea of consciousness that arises in this frequency as you and me having this discussion in this reality and over here a wave that arises as an, another reality, yet one sea. I'm sure you've heard that analogy over and over again, but it's a good one. So I never meant to suggest that heaven was a place. You said, and I'd like you to say it again in, diff- in perhaps a different way, we're not talking about a destination, a place, or a location. No, yet you said our soul is our soul is out there in heaven, which indicates a place. Okay, well, so let's make that clear. We're really talking about a level of awareness. Yes. A state of consciousness. Right, like Rumi said, out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing is a field of consciousness. I will meet you there. That's where we're all joined. Beyond the stories, beyond this reality or any other reality, where we meet that field is pure consciousness before it arises as you and me and our ideas and our experiences. And we can actually access that field in an altered state of consciousness. Like so many of Rumi's sayings, that that one in particular always shakes me when I hear it. Seems so obvious when when you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we need to tell each other here when we're when we're in the midst of conflict. Hey, you 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 are playing a role. You, the soul, are playing a, a role by choice. But don't get so stuck in that role that you fail to see you are a soul. So let's both remember that. And hey, pass the popcorn because this is getting a little rough. <laughs> <laughs> let's take a short break. We'll be back. We're talking with Suzanne Geisman, who is a mystic and. Uh, 
that you might have called years ago a transmedium. We'll find out more about what that means and, again, who we really are. Not so much what awaits us after we die, but what's available to us right now, right here. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. We'll be right back after this. Sometimes when you listen to KPFK during a fun drive, you might feel that maybe your contribution wouldn't really be enough to make a difference. Well, let me tell you something. Every contribution is important, whether it's a single $25 gift, installments of $25 per month, or more. Every listener's financial investment is valued. You depend on us to stay abreast of the news of the day, to know what's going on in our community, our nation, and around the world, to offer great music and cultural programming, and we depend on you to help provide the funding that makes it all happen. Every pledge is important. Every donor is important, no matter how large or small the contribution. So call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Press 2 to go to the call center or go to kpfk.org 24-7 and pledge securely online. We appreciate every contribution, especially yours. And we're back with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. Thanks very much for joining us here today. Our guest, Suzanne Giesman, and I are talking about, well, initially mediumship, but so much more than that. Uh, Suzanne, I've had in the past uh, people who uh, limited themselves, I'll say it that way, to communicating with the dead. And they would offer their services to people and usually reassure them that everything is fine and they have this message and that, that message. I get that that's a very small part of what you actually do and what you're about. That oh, yeah. Watching you, and you are a busy woman. There's so much material about you on the Internet and YouTube that uh, you've concerned yourself with uh, being a teacher in a, in a much bigger way than that. How would you uh, describe your, your mission or your purpose? My mission is to share a message that was put to me very concisely by a young man whose nickname was Wolf, who passed to the other side the same way as my stepdaughter, struck by lightning. Yet he knew he was going to be killed the next day by lightning because he left a poem about it and a drawing of the exact spot where he would be struck and killed, which to me indicates that his soul knew that. And his message is so much more than mediumship. I call it now the awakened way of living. I've put it into just a very concise way of explaining that, number one, we are so much more than our bodies. We are soul in human form for a while. Number two, we're part of a web that connects all realities. And number three, we find our way to our true nature through the heart and not that logical head. So all of my teaching, if I'm ever asked any question, always comes back to that. The mediumship is wonderful. It helped me and my family in our deepest grief and my mediumship when I do individual readings, which I don't have the time to do so much much anymore, but it helps people immediately get to the point where they get past that desperation once they know their loved ones are still part of their life. But then the next question is, okay, so now what? What do we do with this awareness that life goes on? And that's where this awakened way of living, of knowing I am part of this great big web of interconnections and I'm going to start seeing those connections and I'm going to start making 
my life have a little more meaning than I knew in the past when I thought I was limited and finite. And if we are all interconnected, then why aren't we all appreciating each other more? Why aren't we loving each other more? Because once you tap into that grid, that matrix, that web, what we hear is you are a soul and you are here to shine brighter. So the mission is to go home shining brighter than you came here. Home being heaven, that state of awareness. This brings up for me the whole idea of emotional intelligence. I suspect the emotions and our ability to to manage, to accept responsibility for, um, to refine our emotional self is a portal to spiritual growth. There's an old saying, you cannot think your way to God, and you made reference to going out through the heart. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? How do we do that? How do we shift from this cerebral, logical, linear view of reality to an open and receptive heart? The soul gives us awareness of its presence through the heart. There is a longing there for happiness. There is an urge there to find peace, to enjoy connection with others that comes from the soul. And that's why we feel it in the heart. And it's why we do silly things as human to get attention, to feel loved. That's the soul nudging you to find something better, to make better choices than the ones that are keeping us from that sense of connection. So when we listen to the longing in our heart, when we act on it by connecting with others, by serving others, by saying something loving instead of something judgmental or hurtful, there's instant reward for that, if only in the briefest moment. And then the more we realize, I caused that good feeling through my actions, we act on it and we change our immediate world. And ultimately, the world around us, when more and more of us awaken to the fact that using logic, using the head, using what we've been using all along is not working. But the soul is always right here just saying, pay attention. You know how to love. It's part of your nature. I've always been fascinated by the Christian edict to love your enemy. And I think most of us, like so many things spiritual, take that too literally Mm -hmm. or limit ourselves to why would I want to embrace or love or hug or be nice to somebody that wants to hurt me or uh, my family or steal my TV or whatever. And increasingly, I understand that as facing our fear. Mm -hmm. To love your enemy means not to avoid our heartache, but to turn and face it and embrace it, to move into the shadow, to open our hearts to such a point. And I don't mean in the world to be reckless or careless, but I mean in the mind and in the heart to open ourselves to what what hurts and to our heartache and our anxiety and embrace it. And that seems to unmask or reveal the healing truth and wisdom that's hidden or unfolded within this fear and anxiety. 
How does that process occur to you, the idea? I'll say it this way, Alan. <laughs> I heard Alan Watts say once, if you meet a ghost on the path, give him a hug. <laughs> <laughs> well, what our fears do are they indicate when we are stuck in our role as only human, and we are not only human. This is what I didn't know the whole time I was in the military. This is why I suffered on 9-11 and every other human tragedy that we all endure. We suffer, we feel fear, and we see the other as the enemy because we don't realize there is another aspect of us. And it's the eternal one. It's the one that continues after this body that appears to separate us no longer functions. So if we know that we can access that awareness, the soul's point of view, where those insights come from, here and now in any moment, then I can see the soul in one who does something truly evil. And I don't love them, but I see them with compassion because I know that their awareness of their soul is so occluded, so covered over that they feel only pain because hurt people hurt people. They need love more than anyone else because they're so cut off from that loving nature that they could harm others. So it's compassion that comes out instead of separation. That's not something that came to me instantly, and it's not an easy path for us, but it's, it's the setting the intention, I want to come to know my soul's true nature better so that I can see it in others that leads to that transformation. One of the most profound revelations I ever had in meditation, and this was many years ago now, and it, you know, it just was so clear when it came to me as if this voice, everything else fell away, all the monkey mind, all the chatter fell away. And this voice said to me so clearly, uh, so personally, the best parts of you are hidden where you're most afraid to look. Oh, yeah. And I repeated that to myself several times because I didn't want to forget it, but quickly realized this is something I'll never forget. <laughs> what could be easier to remember? And what does it mean? And it's been 25, 30 years, and I'm still plumbing the depths of what that means. And I found it said by others in different ways. Um, Carl Jung talks about the best part of us is in the shadows that we fear to explore. Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, speaks about the hero's journey in the great monomyth of all classic stories where the gold is always guarded by a wicked witch or a dragon or we have to slay some sort of demon within us in order to discover the treasure so does that resonate with you? Do you? More than you know. When you first began this show and you spoke and you spoke of our magnificence, Michael, you have no idea. Your voice, the timbre, everything mimicked a dear friend of mine named Brenda who passed to the other side and continues to talk to me. She talks about our magnificence. But she had these dark places most of her life that she was afraid to go and they went up as defensiveness. It became a shell around her heart. It was in attending one of my presentations, she'd never heard of me and she attended, that that shell cracked open. The wall came down, all this love that was always inside her came flooding out. She didn't know how to handle it. She fled from the venue and thus ensued 
her spiritual awakening. We worked together and she worked on herself. And by the time she passed, she said, I am free. She had found that magnificence inside. You are just, you're like the embodiment of her right now. It's amazing. I'm going to have some friends listen to this show because it's like, this is how spirit expresses itself. It's just beautiful. But, you know, those places we're afraid to go, behind those walls that show up in our lives as defensiveness is this light that never goes out. So there's the first clue. When you get defensive, that's the soul saying, <laughs> like Ronald Reagan said, tear down that wall and the light will shine and you will be free of suffering. Who doesn't want that? And it's right here. I see that with a lot of my friends who are progressives and who are passionate about social justice and wanting to stop war and such, capital punishment, um, race-based uh, uh, conflict and those types of issues. But I also see in many of them a level of anger that reveals to me a lot of personal projection. I think it's wonderful if we're progressive in our ideals and in our activism. Indeed, this radio station is all about that. But I don't see anger serving us. No, it's not aligned with the true nature. It's. <laughs> I'm sorry, would you say that again? I said that anger is not aligned with our true nature. So it's just an indicator of being a little out of alignment, like a musical note. This vessel, this vessel is like a flute. Hafiz, 13th century poet, said, I am a flute through which spirit's breath flows. And so if we get blocked up, our spirit comes out a little flatter sharp. And those emotions like anger are indications that we're not in alignment with our true nature. Love is the truest, clearest note. And we can change and we can solve our world's problems when we don't put up that kind of energy that causes others to meet it with the same or run away. Go to the heart and find that field where we're in alignment. Now maybe we can hear each other. I think anger is a complex emotion. I feel hurt in anger, I feel sadness mm -hmm. in anger, but I think it's rooted in fear. I think anger is a defense mechanism to scare away the threat, something that worked when we were in the jungle evolving, but which we don't really need now. That's right. It's part of the human nature. The, heart, the human body is hardwired for self-protection, security, safety. It's the spirit that knows all is well always even if the body fails all is well and that's something that's hard to get through to the human thinking a great deal of spiritual development is about healing i'm wondering if you can speak for us a little about healing in a larger sense healing our society uh, the way we treat each other um the great rift in polarization that um, many politicians promote and, and get their money and their power from dividing us further and frightening us even more. How do we heal the body politic? 
it comes back to that seeing each other as souls, doing our best. I like the image of a tree with a lot of leaves on it. Do the leaves on one side of the tree look at the trees on the leaves on the other side of the tree and say, you're right, you're wrong, you're ugly, or whatever. It's understanding that we are already whole, that the wholeness encompasses different views, that we will never all see the same way because our world in which we live is made up of so many diverse pieces by design to allow us this dance of opposites for the joy that results when we find the common ground, which is our innate interconnectedness. And that's what's missing. We need to understand we are both human and souls. The humans, by design, have different views. The soul knows only love. Do you teach meditation? And if so, what would be a good practice? What would you suggest or recommend to our audience if they're frustrated by their attempts to meditate. I would absolutely send them to my YouTube video that is called Sip of the Divine, where S-I-P stands for Sit in Peace. It's a beautiful three-minute practice that anybody can do because the biggest excuse to meditation is I don't have the time for that or I can't quiet my mind long enough. And this very simple practice that you can do multiple times a day or only one allows you to ask a question of higher consciousness, your own soul, whoever answers that question, you'll know the answer when you get it is not coming from your localized awareness. And the more you commit yourself to doing that regularly, once a day, three minutes, you'll start to get answers that are helpful. You will start to connect with higher intelligence and your own intuition. And those three minutes, who knows, may turn into eight, 12, 20, and your life will be transformed. But it takes three weeks to start a new habit. So if you're going to watch that video, say, I'm ready for a change. I'll give it three weeks. Then we'll see. Intuition is such a wonderful thing. Uh, I feel like I have a friend in my intuition, somebody that I can always trust and believe in. What strikes me about my intuition is how patient it is. <laughs> it, it never abandons me. It's like a... A cloudy day, no matter how stormy it may be outside, I know that somewhere the sun is shining right above it. Yeah. And uh, so my life may uh, have its turmoil, but if I sit quietly and if I become patient, this still small voice will not only reassure me, but give me really valid and valuable information, insight, and understanding. You know why that is? It's because it bypasses the brain. <laughs> it bypasses that logical side. It's straight from the soul. And it's the part of you that goes with you when you no longer have a functioning brain. It's that knowing, that pure awareness. And when we learn to act on that and trust that, of course it's a beautiful voice that speaks to us. Hmm. Yet we hear many people, including yourself, I hear you speaking of guides and guidance. Mm -hmm. You speak to other spirits. For example, if you talk to the soul of a departed, is that you communicating with that soul or is that your soul communicating with that soul on its own plane? The answer is yes, it is both. It's Suzanne acting out the role of the medium, and it's the soul communi communicating with the soul of that other one. And 
it is ultimately the one mind acting out all those parts. So how noisy is it up there if you have multiple guides or guidance? Is that just a way of us relating to a single soul? Or, or It is. It's, it's not noisy at all when you set a clear intention. It's like when you go to a museum and you see a diorama and you push a button, how do I get from here to there? And it lights up the path. Through intention, we can connect with any other aspect of consciousness, higher consciousness, telepathically, and it becomes very quiet because that's where the focus is. If I want to talk to somebody's uh, loved one in spirit and suddenly five of their loved ones come in all at once, I say, one at a time, please, and that's what we get. Yet I can feel all of them around. I've heard it said that between the one and the many is a group, that the souls live together in ashrams or houses of the holy, if you will, um, sharing a similar purpose. Do you have a belief for an understanding of soul groups or families, ashrams, so to speak? I, I know that soul families are, are a, a grouping, a subset of the, the higher one intelligence. Why wouldn't it? It's all about connection. Why would it just be one-on-one -on -one connection? We enjoy connection with families here and it just goes out and out, smaller and larger subsets of the one light. For the joy of it, Michael. Yeah, that feels right. That, that definitely feels right. So we're never really alone. We're, this whole idea of being alienated, separated, I don't fit in, I'm not like other people, I have this exaggerated need for attention and affection, that's all an illusion, isn't it? It is. It is. It doesn't make this reality any less real, but it's the illusion that we are separate from each other. I, I have a quick story if you want to hear one of that soul family connection. Sure. If we have time for it. I met a woman at a afterlife conference, Ingrid Honkala. She's another mystic teacher. And we looked in each other's eyes and there was instant connection. It was unusual. It wasn't, it wasn't like love or friendship. It was, I know you. And so we've gotten together over the last couple of years and we both are married to military husbands and they ground us. We would float away if it were for our strong military husbands. And I just found out, she wrote about this in her book. She went aboard a military ship that visited Cartagena, Colombia, when she was a young girl. She went with her father. A U.S. military ship was visiting. She's Colombian, Cartagena. And that day, she had a vision of a U.S. Navy sailor. And she knew that is the man she would marry. Michael, she ultimately married that man. I've heard her story. I've heard her share it. I've read it in her book. I've now met that husband. We just found out this week that ship was the battleship Iowa that my husband took to Cartagena. My husband was on that ship in 1985 connecting. This is the web I'm talking about. And now we're friends. It's just stunning. So I know that when I saw Ingrid, that soul connection was because at some level, and it, it's outside of time, so we can't say 20, 30 years ago or 60 years ago, our soul said, you know, we're gonna, it's gonna unfold this way, but it's just this web of connections that just leaves you in wonder when you pull the threads. Yeah, Jung called those synchronicities the meaningful coincidence. Mm -hmm. And I watched one of your videos where you were talking about the, uh, the dandelion that blossoms into the, uh, the fractal of the, uh, yeah, those, the, that, that beautiful, 
I don't know what you call the dandelion at that stage. There's a puffball or something. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The seed pod. I don't know. I looked it up too when I saw that because it's so indicative of how we're all connected. And, you, and each one of these little nodes, that's you, that's me, that's Ingrid, that's somebody's soul across the veil. Not just at this reality, at all realities. One interconnected web. The spirit world is not out there. It's right here. We just can't see the strands because these bodies are the veil. We say we part the veil to talk to our loved ones. Well, we get beyond the physical senses, and here they are. That's what my friend Brenda, who passed, we mentioned her earlier. That's what she shared with me, that I'm right here. I didn't go anywhere. All of our loved ones are as close as our heart, but yet it's consciousness, the grid, the field that connects us. Yeah. That's the message I got. I asked once in level in a meditation, where do we go when we die? And the answer came back, nowhere. That's right. In other words, you, yeah. you're where you've always been. You awaken to a different experience of life, which I call love in full expression, no matter where we find ourselves or in what state, what body. But we exist outside space and time. Again, there is no place, no destination, no location. Always. You know. Right now. Yeah. It takes away the fear of death. That changes a lot of things. Suzanne, how can folks follow up and get more information about you? You have so many books and videos and upcoming events. Uh, what's the best way to get the lowdown on what you're doing, where you're going to be next? Well, my website is my name, SuzanneGiesman.com. Search for my YouTube videos like you did, but a lot of, a lot of gifts, free material meditations and videos on my website as well. I teach online classes, how to connect, and I do classes in person and retreats and lots of books and meditation CDs. It's just, like I said, it's my passion, Michael. Well, obviously, when you look at the volume of work that you're doing, it must be a passion for you, and uh, you're fortunate in that regard. Most people, of course, live their whole lives and never get to do what they love to do, and that uh, you're able to do that is indeed a blessing. I want to thank you very much for being available uh, to us on KPFK today. And uh, it's very nice meeting you and chatting with you. And I hope we can do it again down the calendar page a bit. Same here, Michael. Some really deep questions. And it's, it's just fun to talk about these things. It is. It's fun. I said that at the top of the show. It's all good news, folks. Suzanne Giesman, my guest on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and we'll be right back after this. Sometimes when we use something every day, we tend to take it for granted. For instance, you probably don't think much about getting in your car every morning until it needs to be fixed. Well, in a way, your support of KPFK is like preventive maintenance. It's about ensuring the financial stability of this station so that we can continue to provide a service that you use every day. So please do your part to keep KPFK in good operating condition. Take a moment now to go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online. Or you can call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Press 2 to go to the call center. And thank you for helping KPFK to move the conversation forward. We rely on you to maintain our independent voice on air for over 61 years. Thanks for listening. Thank you for pledging. And we're back with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. 
Again, I want to thank Suzanne Giesman for making yourself available for this show. I was really intrigued by a great deal of what she said. You know, it's really easy when we discuss the field of spirituality, philosophy, and religion to get caught up in mythology, belief systems, an understanding of faith that says we have to believe and invest emotionally and mentally in rigid doctrine, in dogma, in that which is written down in ancient holy books. And indeed, if the information that you discover in an ancient holy book or text resonates with you, if you try it in your life and it works for you, then it's no longer ancient. It's no longer mythology. It works for you. But each of us has the opportunity to use our lives right here and right now. The life that we've been given, the life that we've created and are co-creating with others to apply these spiritual principles, especially with the aid of science and physics, in particular quantum physics, which speaks so directly to the nature of awareness and consciousness. Many people still think of religious dogma and doctrine as conflicting with science, as if evolution was just introduced and somehow contradicted Genesis and, and the ideas of creation that come from Abrahamic monotheism. But who's to say that the divine did not create evolution? <laughs> There's really no contradiction in that whatsoever if you work with it. And so it is with quantum physics teaching us that we cannot separate awareness from our experience of reality. So why not be more aware of awareness itself? I often use the phrase, noticing what you notice. I think that's a easier way to consider it than a big word like consciousness that can be intimidating and difficult to define. But to simply be aware of awareness itself, to be an observer or a witness, rather than so caught up in our thoughts, so driven by our emotions, and so reflexive in our behavior that we feel like victims of life, as if it's done to us, and all we can do then is struggle against it. I bet you know exactly what I'm talking about, how that feels, to be trapped in a struggle against forces that oppose you. We see that all across the social and political economic spectrum. Whether you're rich or poor, the rich feel they struggle too. They, they're mystified. They, they, <laughs> they often have no idea why they're not happy. They should be happy. They have all this money, and yet their problems persist. And, of course, those who live in poverty, for them there's a great deal of evidence about why they're not happy. And so we thrash about trying to find control in our lives to influence other people or institutions to try to get a grip on circumstances and events that 
so often are out of our control. And again, the idea that we get so caught up in that, that we fail to sit back and watch what's unfolding. You do that when you watch a movie. You sit back, you've got a remote control in your hand, but you probably don't do very much controlling with it. You, you just sort of sit back and watch the movie unfold. Sometimes it feels like you're a part of the movie. You get drawn into it. You react as if you're one of the players, but really, you know better. And yet in this movie of life, this this drama, this stage play, this dream that we call being awake and aware and alert and, and living in the world, we're constantly struggling for control. What if the secret to that control was consciousness? What if the secret to that ability to influence and persuade was in stepping back and becoming not the thinker, but the observer of your thoughts, not the one who feels done to, but the observer of that feeling. I love the line in Man's Search for Meaning, the book by Viktor Frankl, where he says, between cause and effect, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space, there's enormous freedom. Well, the space between what's done to you and what you do with it is consciousness. That's awareness. You can pause before you react, consider the consequences of reacting, review the choices that you have, and then go beyond what's immediately apparent to some other options that may not have occurred to you right away, and then carefully consider a response that's initiated instead of just some reflex. So while we rarely have control or even influence over what happens to us, we do have control over how we look at it and how we respond. And that's consciousness. That's self-awareness. Aware not only of the external situation we find ourselves in, but aware also of our personal internal situation or condition. And that's the secret, to make your life about yourself. And that may sound selfish, because ironically, selfish people always put themselves first, but then they behave in selfish ways. Conscious people put themselves first as a way of enhancing their contribution to other people. Conscious, self-realized, self-aware people still put themselves first, just as we're told to do on the airplane with the air mask. Before you put the air mask on the children or even the baby, put yours on first. Why is that not selfish? It, 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 not only is it unselfish, it's the smart thing to do. So to be aware of yourself, to be conscious of who you are and what you're for, what your capabilities are, what your weaknesses are, where you can develop yourself, where you can improve and be better. That's the best possible thing you could do for other people. Earlier this hour in our interview, I heard Suzanne say, hurt people hurt people. And she went by that so quickly that I almost didn't catch it. It's like hurt people, hurt being the adjective, hurt people, now it's a verb. 
people who hurt other people are hurt themselves. And this is where the idea of compassion comes in. But it all dances around interconnectedness. When you understand yourself, you're able to empathize, to see yourself in other people. And instead of struggling and opposing and resisting and seeking control of the external, you instead turn toward the development of self-control and thereby enhance your influence on other people. Well, now, here comes the sales pitch. So why support KPFK? Here we are in the middle of our summer fun drive. And instead of insulting commercials brought to you by corporate sponsors, we appeal to you to support what supports you. For since the beginning, in the late 50s, KPFK has been a non-commercial, listener-sponsored, free speech, progressive radio station. Now, somewhere in there, did you hear listener-sponsored? That's you. That's you for a number of reasons. In part, the fact that only one in ten listeners to this radio station ever contributes even a nickel. Most do not because they don't have to. We want things for free. Well, when the power bill comes in here at KPFK, not only for the lights and the air conditioning, but 110,000 watts off Mount Wilson, it'd be nice if we could say to the power company, well, we're nonprofit, and so this electricity ought to be free. Well, <laughs> they're not too impressed by that. And there's a mortgage on the building. And there are staff members here who must come day by day. Many of us are volunteers. I do this show once a week, most others once a week. But somebody's got to be here day after day after day, even through the pandemic, working from home, using Internet technology to keep this radio station on the air 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so it's not too much to ask that you put $10 a month toward supporting this radio station. Ten bucks a month. That's a nice contribution of $120 a year. Or if you have more, 20 or $25 a month or $30 a month. Whatever you feel you can afford. But do that. Do that now. kpfk.org slash donate. Clear your conscience. Join the family. Be a viable member of the community. I appreciate it. And so does everyone else here at KPFK. Thanks for being with us today. Check out the podcast of this program, The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, on all platforms. Also streaming at theagelesswisdom.com. Learn more about me at michaelbenner.com. And join us next week for The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK.